Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Google tells us that we're live now, mate. So welcome. Oh, welcome to YouTube. How's that? Yeah, it's great. It's always like when, when we go live, you've got to do it in Zoom and then you've got to do it in YouTube. It's almost like you just never know. Are we alone? Can anyone hear well, us? Can yeah, you know, somebody on Twitter can tell us that they can at least hear us and they know we would appreciate that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Bit of a yeah, feedback loop. Agile. If you like, Agile feedback. Let, yeah, just let us know. <laughs> uh, that you can know hear us. And, and at least that's where we feel like we're not alone, you know? Yeah. Yep. D says sound is good. Thank you, D. That's wonderful. There we go. We've got feedback. Okay. Iteration. Iteration. (laughs) Let's go. Let's hit it. (laughs) Uh, How's your week been, mate? Um, no, fantastic week. Like, I mean, you know, uh, I got my Starlink has arrived in a box and uh, it's still still in the box. Uh, It's hopefully going to get put up today. Um, What's interesting is it comes with all the connections in the box, there's like all connections are made. So basically they tell you exactly how it should be connected. <laughs> the whole thing is connected. It's pretty awesome. I took pictures of that. Um, how, does, how long will it take you to put this thing together? Cause it's like a, it's like a yeah, tripod I, little yeah. So the, uh, if I, yeah, if I want to put the tripod and put the tripod out in the open, I could have just done it myself. It came yesterday. Um, I actually want to put it on the roof. So uh, okay. I, I've got someone coming who hopefully can put it up on the roof and then run the conduit for the cable down. Uh, it comes with like, you know, 100 meters of cable. So you should be able to run. Like, we'll see. If not, yeah. you can always run it out in the open. But, you know, my dog might chew the, <laughs> <laughs> the cable. That'll be a small problem. <laughs> so, so, um, is it, so it's got like the... I, I guess it's got the dish and then the tripod and then the, is it just an ethernet cable that runs into the house yeah. or how does that work? Yeah. So there's an ethernet type cable. I guess it's a ether, it's a, it's a power enabled ethernet cable. That's how the Starlink gets its power. So, uh, um, so, you know, then it hooks on to, I guess a bridge and then that bridge hooks, the bridge is powered. And then from that bridge, you connect to your Wi-Fi router, which Starlink has provided. And then, Boom. Within, well, in 15 minutes, they said it should find, it should lock onto a satellite and it should be bye-bye NBN at that point. <laughs> well, hopefully this time next week, we're streaming in 4K because it's so clear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> magical things just happen. That's and really that's cool. What, imagine, yeah. imagine that five years ago or 10 years ago saying, oh yeah, I'm just going to put this in my backyard and going to just dial into a satellite and we'll have super fast internet. Yeah, it would have been, yeah, like... Um, yeah, it would have you know the satellite internet is supposed to be slow, mm. <laughs> but yeah, but these are low Earth, uh, low orbit um, satellites. So low Earth orbit satellites versus being geostationary or whatever satellites that have you know travel so high <laughs> and come back. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I, I still have I'm still waiting for mine. I don't know. Maybe I just need to wait a bit longer. Um, I noticed you got the the, the, sh- the shirt on, by the way. Ah, oh, you noticed. We must that. be talking about something. <laughs> Today. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Talk about the, the plaid T-shirt and uh, well, I've got the Tesla Owners uh, Club <laughs> mug. So every time you renew your, you know, subscription to or your uh, 
membership to Tesla Owners Club. Hat tip to them. They do a fantastic job. Um, mm. It's the only uh, owners club that's actually Tesla approved. And um, yeah, you pay 50 bucks, but they give you a mug. They give you a hat sometimes and caps. Um, and you get discounts on shopping. And they organize lots of events, get togethers, you know, the Tesla car rallies mm-hmm. that happen. You know, it's, it's great fun. Uh, and you meet a lot of interesting people there. Yeah, so yeah, right. uh, I love that. You know what? I was going to ask you, what are you working on? Because I, I have a feeling you've been working on quite a few things. And some of them actually sound super exciting. So why don't you tell us about that first? Uh, yeah, well, I guess just um, the, the the life of a of, of a podcast host means that you get to speak to some interesting people. So over the past week, we've either aired podcasts or recorded podcasts with Tanya De Jong, which was a really interesting, totally different type of conversation that I wouldn't normally have. Um, Tanya is a opera singer, qualified lawyer, uh, former semi pro tennis player, just on serial entrepreneur so she was on the, the podcast recently which is great um i spoke to kate morris who's the founder of adore beauty i spoke to her earlier this week that will go live soon and what was interesting adore beauty is the um australia's largest online only beauty retailer and she started it i believe it was about 2000 so this is like before people were accepting the internet for what it actually was so maybe it's like the blockchain today kind of thing and she was really early and so just hearing her story about how capital unlocked growth for her business was incredible because normally I just think of capital as kind of something that, you know, doesn't, re- it plays a role, but it doesn't play a fundamental role in businesses, but it actually, in this case, it was pivotal to the growth that they experienced. So that was kind of cool. Um, we chatted to on the other finance uh, podcast that we've got, uh, we chatted to uh, a fire blogger uh, by the name of Aussie Firebug, Matt from Aussie Firebug. <clears throat> He's actually a, um, a data, I guess you call him like a data engineer or developer. Um, so he works in um, the Azure stack and all that. And um, yeah, he's basically on a fire movement. So financial independence, retire early. He's a young chap, I think early thirties, but he, um, yeah, he's basically reached what he calls like financial independence at that age. And so we just got him on and had a chat to him about his journey to that. And it was really interesting um, because the fire movement's a massive thing about kind of being minimalistic uh, in your purchasing decision. So it's got a lot of myths around it and whatever you're in a few stereotypes that probably are unfounded, but uh, yeah, that was really interesting. And finally, I spoke to Chloe Stokes, who is the um, a senior investment analyst at Forager Funds She's on the international fund there. So they'll go live, I think next week or the week after. And basically she's a former M&A analyst. So we got to talk about uh, things like how valuation and, and building a thesis kind of intertwine. It was really interesting. And we also got some tips on the best burger joints in, in Sydney. So if, if you're interested in burgers, you can s- stick around on the podcast in the next few weeks, you'll hear that come out. But um, yeah, man, that's, so that's, that's basically, it's been mostly podcasts this week. A bit of, like a lot of doodles on the board behind me, but um, that's about it. How about yourself? What have you been up to? Oh, you know, n- n- nothing as exciting as yours. Yours is an exciting plate, I would call it. I- I've been just digging <laughs> for stock ideas, looking at my watch list, you know, doing the usual things, looking at some companies. Some stocks were looking, uh, which I said, they were be- becoming better value prices. And then the sort of, you know, the stocks have, you know, it's been a volatile month. Um, I, <laughs> and I think, oh, wow, that's a Absolutely. 30% discount. Oh, no, that isn't a 30% discount <laughs> anymore. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I've been doing that. Um, just yeah, general general thinking around how to do you ever get the mark. 
Sorry, yeah. do you ever get any feedback when you release recommendations? Like say when you release the one for October, do you get feedback from members directly? Yeah, so, you know, a lot of people chime in to me, they DM me, you know. Yep. Um, so this is very interesting. Uh, I got a very interesting DM from a very well-meaning subscriber who nicely, <laughs> in a very nice way, hey, has your mind gone <laughs> bonkers? <laughs> <laughs> this is so, uh, you know, there's dilution risk, there's that risk, there's this issue, there's that issue. Why did you pick this one? And it was, a, it was, it was good. It was good. We had a back and forth chat about it and, you know, um, yeah, so I, I do get occasionally DMs. Sometimes we get emails coming in uh, to member services and things like that. Um, there's some feedback, <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, every time I stray from my my usual path, I do get some feedback from people, uh, which I actually quite enjoy because you know it gives again the all the hard questions are great. The mm. you know, and sometimes even the simple questions are great because you know. Um, not to make light of anyone, one of the things that I have always thought this is very useful is, uh, and I found this useful, is if, a, if many people think something is not interesting and you think it's interesting, then it's worthwhile investigating why you think it's in interesting and why the others don't think it's interesting. Mm. And often there might be very good reason for uh, people to think it's not interesting and for you, you to change your mind. But sometimes there's opportunities uh, where um, you could, Assume that maybe the lens with which people are looking at it is maybe a bit tainted uh, by mm. how they look at other things, right? Because, you know, we talked about this, mental models are very useful, right? So, you know, or our mind tends to make generalizations, right? So we tend to generalize it. This was not in our script, but we are now going off script. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we tend to have patterns. So we do pattern, so stock picking, I call it, is a bit like pattern recognition. Mm. The problem is the pattern is never identical, right? And because identical makes it very easy, right? If, if you look at Google and you say, oh, that's the next Google, that's too obvious, right? So it's, it's mm. too obvious. It'll get priced accordingly. And it's probably not going to be the next Google. And the next Google is probably just Google, right? So, uh, so there's like, you know, you can do pattern recognition to match things that kind of rhyme. You know, like it's like the you know history doesn't repeat, but kind of rhymes. Mm. Um, it's that sort of idea, and sometimes what happens is I think the lens with which is being companies are being looked at is too restrictive. So a classic example would be Apple for a long time was well, it's just a hardware play, mm. right? It shouldn't have a PE greater than that of Dell or HP or whatever that make other hardware. And for the longest time, it had that PE while it kept generating cash flows that nobody else could generate, <laughs> including the software place, right? Eventually, after a long, long time, the market sort of catches up and, the, you know, and, and a couple of other things happened where, you know, management decided, well, we, we think our shares are undervalued. We can just reduce the float dramatically. And they did, right? And that really paid rich dividends. So, you know, there's an opportunity to think different. So I like, I like these questions. And, um, you know, if I'm convinced that I like an idea and a number of people tell me that they don't, uh, actually, I think, okay, that's really good. Because that means, um, you know, if I am right, I'm going to be right by a big margin. Mm. Um, you know? and, and I've seen that happen a couple of times. You know, Apple is a great example. Tesla is another great example. You know, I could never convince any of my colleagues to, I could convince a small percentage of my colleagues to, um, agree that Tesla is a great company, but you know mm. it's the same story with Apple. So I, I think you know, um, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. And again, I could be wrong, and I have been wrong as well, and I've been convinced. But I think it's an interesting lens. 
nonetheless. It is. It is. And I think too, like where we see friction, not only in investing, but we see friction in the business world is where we typically see the most innovation and the biggest payoffs. So like one of those ones would have been say Afterpay as an Australian experience, which was very, very controversial, but it made a lot of sense to a lot of people for that to be a product in the market, you know, displacing credit cards and what have you. So, um, and that was, you know, and then there was consumer groups and, you know, ethical groups and all this type of stuff um, around the outside, regulators, politicians. And it basically that created a heap of friction similar to your Tesla experience. And the payoffs were enormous. And I think what's the thing? You just, if you, if you have a variant perception, you've just got to be right if you are variant. So that's the thing. <laughs> just try and be right. <laughs> and, and if you're right, as you said, and so the Afterpay one is a very interesting example. So I was on the other side of the fence completely like, okay, what's big about this? There's nothing big. This is credit being, you know, this is like payday lending. You know, there's another, the cycle is going to change and blah, it will happen. And all the regulators will get in and blah, blah, blah will happen. And this is like, you know, they're uh, and, and I had, you know, and shout out to um, uh, Ryan Newman, whom I used to work with. He sort of convinced me. He said, okay, you know, there are many ways to look at this. Uh, by the time I had changed, sort of changed my mind, okay, that I did realize that the model is interesting and model is different. But, you know, he basically built me a model and said, okay, look at this model. As I looked at the model, I said, okay, yeah, this really makes sense. This thing can actually scale. And, you know, this, it was really like a moment where if you wanted to be a little bit more open minded, you could see mm. that there was a vast, enormous potential. And now, of course, we know that everybody's gunning for it, right? There's like all these deals happening in the buy now, mm. pay later sector. Everybody's making deals, right? They are now front and center, right? They are a legitimate payment modality today. So again, I think, yeah, it's just try. it's very easy to be narrow focused in our thinking and be restrictive, but it's, it's excellent if we can try to be a little bit open-ended and see, okay, you know, what does that mean? Because as you said, just as you said, right, the payoff, if you're right, payoff can be N times. <laughs> the mm. downside is, it's, you know, probably, downside on a decent company is probably 50, 60%, right? The downside on an indecent company, or let me say, a, a, you know, non-revenue generating company, something can be 100%. <laughs> But, you know, companies generating some revenue and things like that, probably 50, 60 percent, maybe 70, maybe 90 percent you can lose. But, you know, the pay, it is asymmetrical to start off with. Mm, it is indeed. And that's why I like it when the, the debates are like respectful debates have to be respectful debates are intense because that's where you really see and you get a sense of what is the opposing side saying and what am I saying and could they be right? If they're not, and they still believe that, then you know where do we fall on that line? I think um, you know it was it's it's an interesting way to kind of like invert the logic. But uh, David Gardner, the co-founder of Full, would always say um, the best companies are the ones that everyone says are expensive because if they're if everyone says they're expensive, no one's buying them. <laughs> so then I can buy them, and so it's just an interesting like turn of you know logic there. Uh, the Yogi Berra quote: "No one goes there anymore; it's too busy." Um, these are the types of environments where you need to make a decision. And I find them really exciting. Some people run towards those types of situations and some people, you know, flee. I, I find them really exciting. And I think it just comes back to your research. We'll talk about Tesla in just a second, but before we get to that, if you have any questions, chuck them into the uh, YouTube live stream there. And uh, you can also find us on Twitter at 7A Mahanthi and at Owen Rask on Twitter. There's been heaps of questions coming through for today's conversation. 
but we probably won't be able to get too many of them because we're only here for an hour. Um, mate, one of the things that we've already alluded to is talking about Tesla. We've just recorded a bunch of um, deliveries for the third quarter, I believe it was. Really interesting stuff. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, there's already a question come through on this. Um, Anirban, what... Was there one thing or event that made you go heavy on Tesla? So maybe we can answer Dee's question there about what made you, you know, kind of go so big into that position while also discussing the third quarter deliveries. Excellent. So that question is in tw- So I was investing in Tesla for a long time, since 2013. Um, and actually, I initially did not buy Tesla, but, you know, um, there's a gentleman called John Sargent um, who I knew through an online board. And he basically pointed me to a video. He said, look at this video. And, you know, and, and John Sargent actually taught me a number of different things. So this is another thing I really like about, um, about people. And things like Twitter is that there are people who teach you things. Like, you know, he taught me about, a lot about options, for example, uh, which I find fascinating. Mm. Um, so I, I, oh, there's a lot of debt there um, to this particular individual. And so I looked at it, I bought some shares, and I followed the story closely. In, so between 2018 and 2019, it was quite obvious at that point that Tesla was being, Tesla stock was mostly behaving based on short interest. Yeah. Right. And there was like at, at one point it was pretty clear that there's a lot of IP here, right? I mean, the, the story for Bev's was quite clear. There's a lot of IP here. So the downside was pretty low. And in the sense that, well, you know what, you know, if I buy in at, you know, a 30, 40, $50 billion valuation, how much am I, you know, or 60 billion, whatever it was, well, it's going to drop by half, but there is IP value here. And, um, you know, but the upside could be huge because you know, you've got a leader who's not going to give up <laughs> and, and you've got a brand, brand leadership position, right? And, you know, people underestimate this rabid fan following is a huge deal. Like Tesla could basically create like a belt, a shirt, tequila, whatever it feels like, (laughs) flamethrower, and it's going to sell. So so that is something, right? To have that much love and respect from consumers is something. It's like, you know, I I, I bought the car sight unseen. So I think those, I tried to value the intangibles. Then it was quite evident that the shorting was playing a big role in the stock price. And the caveat was as long as Tesla did not go bankrupt, Tesla was going to make it and it's going to be just fine. And the probability that it was going to go bankrupt was pretty low, in my opinion, you know, irrespective of what uh, Elon Musk says that, you know, we're seven days or eight days, sounds dramatic that, you know, running out of money. He's, a, he's, a, he's, think of this Elon Musk can raise money from pretty much anyone, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So <laughs> he would have been able to raise money. Uh, and, yeah, and and you know that 420 tweet or whatever he did. I mean, that was basically you know it was just like you know people get tired and they get desperate and they don't want to deal with stuff. <laughs> like you know, it's just like okay, nobody gets it. I want to do this. Okay, fine. Can we just take it private and not have to deal with the public market? That was just that. Um, and I'm glad that there, he was not able to do that because you know mm. uh, <laughs> that would have meant for many of us. Well, significant, uh, you know, uh, loss of uh, upside opportunity. So I, I think, you know, following, and there's a parallel here, actually, I'll point out. I, I followed the short story very closely and what was going on with the share price. So actually, contrary to what people might think, the share price action sometimes actually tells you a lot because sometimes the share price action is all about 
you know, um, technicals and shorting and so on, right? And it doesn't matter in the long, long term, but if you want to make a good entry, maybe sometimes it can actually help you. So there's a, there was a parallel story here that's very important to understand. So there's a company um, called Fairfax Financials in Canada mm-hmm. um, uh, run by Prem Watsa. And uh, he's known as the Warren Buffett equivalent in Canada. And his company was shorted heavily um, in the past. And this, there's an, there is an airy similarity between that short, the, um, the solar city short and the Tesla short. Part, and the one thing I want to say, you know, one of the things to understand with shorting is what, is the, what are great companies to short? A company, a financial company is a great one to short because it depends on finance from the capital markets. So Solar City was a great short for that reason because it was dependent on getting finance from the market for you know financing their loans, their green bonds, and whatever else that they were selling. It was basically less of a tech company at that point, and it was more of a financial company at that one. So it, there was similarities. Tesla was not a financial company because it did need capital, but you know there was it was clear that once it it passed that capital hump. Um, you know, it'd be just fine, as we have seen. You know, it, it's just generally gobs of free cash flow now. Um, so I think, the, the, you know, I'd say putting an effort to understand what was going on was important. And the more I tried to understand, it was pretty clear to me that a lot of people who were opposing it actually do not understand the other aspects of what's going on. And I, I, you know, in terms of just the share price action. So um, I, I think that played a very important role in trying to decide, okay, I can go big. Uh, in this one, because I understand the underlying dynamics as well as I could. And I'd say that, you know, I had a lot of friends online, a lot of small groups, and a lot of interesting, sometimes talking with people who are smart, <laughs> smarter than you really helps because they, you know, you know, this is how I discovered this information, you know, this is being shared uh, widely in different circles, <laughs> hmm. right? Not in the mainstream media. So mo- most of the time, what happens is the mainstream media does not carry it's too detailed to explain why this short is similar to that short and this story. It would make for brilliant investigative journalism, but that's not going to result in any clickbaits. But you know, um, you remember advertising and clickbaits, how things work. So mm-hmm. that's the short answer, right? So you know, digging deep and knowing what, what to look for really helps. Um, how about the concern that because because you sh- you shared a um uh, an article on Apple News actually before I think it was from the uh, Wall Street Journal, which talked about GM's move into electrics. And I think one of the comments in the 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 write up from the journalist was that Tesla is about 10, 10x the size of GM or something like that in terms of market cap. One of the big concerns that has always been kind of evident for at least not just from short sellers but people who don't really understand um, is that. Tesla's already so big and the market for luxury cars is on the X and is it a race to a bottom on prices and, you know, the supply chain risks and whatever. How do you, because just coming back to the quarterly here, the quarterly deliveries, there was about 200, over 240,000 vehicles delivered, right? Yeah. Can, can they sustain that level of deliveries and still keep pushing out the free cash flow that they're doing? Like, is that something that p- plays into your mind now or did in the past? That kind of stuff. Yeah. So one of the things to think about is um, this is what I call. So, so there, this is a very detailed question that you're asking. So there are a number of different points to answer this. But 
So one way to think about uh, a company like Tesla is to think about, um, maybe I'll put a shout out to um, Daniel uh, Usia, who yeah. did an interview with me for, um, for about Tesla. Actually, we talked a lot about these things mm, there, so, you yeah. know, so we, can, we can link to that. But number one thing to realize is if Tesla's production capacity right now is at, say, 1,050,000 cars, it's actually mm-hmm. not yet producing cars at that rate. In other words, it's got some capital in, the ground mostly, and um, you know, as it as it ramps up, ramping up is a slow process, right? And but as it ramps up, it basically gets what I would call operating leverage, right? Yes, it costs a certain amount of money to make the car, but a lot of capital has already been put in. So you you're going to get effectively return on invested capital will go up as more cars are produced from the same factory, for sure, right? And and that's what's happening. So Tesla's ROIC, if you you know make calculations and do some adjustments and depending on what adjustments you're making uh you know it could be as it right now is as high as maybe 17 18 percent and maybe after this quarter it'd probably be around 22 23 24 percent that is phenomenally high right if you compare that with say something like amazon which is another capital heavy business um you know it's getting pretty close to some of the big tech companies Right, so Apple's ROIC is somewhere in the forty percent range, right, and that's driven a lot by the reduction in capital, which is by by buyback. So, if your ROIC is high, because basically your you know is is more than say market beating from um, from the capital that you're putting in, this is a pretty good place to be. None of the other guys are that. None of the other OEMs are that place. So that's sort of one way to look at it. The other way to think about this is what I call the stranded asset problem. So I think what people used to think is the other OEMs are great at manufacturing. Mm. I think they're great at manufacturing ice age vehicles, right? <laughs> when, they, when they manufacture electric vehicles like Bolt, they actually have to recall the entire thing and you can't park a Bolt within 50 meters or whatever of another car because it can actually catch fire, right? <laughs> so the recall, the entire Bolt lineup, every car <laughs> has had to be recalled. So how, think about that as reputation damage uh, for GM. So I, I think what I call a standard asset problem is that they have factories which can produce ice vehicles, but they don't have factories that produce EVs, mm. right? So they have all this asset that is basically, well, some of it is going to be reworked, but it has to be reworked. It means they have to put in more capital. It's not like, you know, for them, it's a very difficult position. They have to somehow transition while trying to be profitable. But if they want to be profitable, they have to sort of... Uh, um, transition their most profitable vehicles to EVs. <laughs> but then if you do that, then you're currently making a lot of losses, right? So how do you do that? It's just very, very difficult, right? And some um, of their balance sheets are pretty stretched already, right? They're not exactly healthy. They're not exactly flush. Uh, and so that they're, you know, many of these companies, and, and another way to think about this is, yes, they're trying to transition, but the Ford uh, Lightning has got what, 100, 150,000 reservations, right? Those are reservations. Well, mm-hmm. Cybertruck has over a million reservations. Right. Hideous looking thing, as some people call it, mm-hmm. has a million reservations. So that's the problem, right? And Ford uh, and uh, the, uh, the Ford Mustang Marquis, which is the, uh, the Marquis uh, or whatever Mustangs are, they've sold a grand total of 18,000 vehicles since launch. <laughs> Right. They don't have a charging network. So it's really a tough position to be in, right? If this transition is going to happen. So, the, you know, the valuation, I, I like to say, you know, people, I like to say that 
I think Tesla is still undervalued <laughs> just based on vehicle production and its cash flow generation capabilities at, at the present moment. In the long run, of course, we're all dead, but in the long run, everyone is dead. <laughs> so I'm not even thinking of the stable equilibrium as, as what's happening, but as long as Tesla is, is basically building new factories and is ahead in the game for producing electric vehicles, and they're able to maintain margin, that's negative pressure for every other incumbent, which basically means there's going to be some dramatic shift in share of auto production over time, mm. right? So, right, you said 30%, 40%, I don't know, you know, um, of total total worthwhile EV market, you know, how much does Tesla land up having? It's, it's going to be an interesting one to see. How about then when people say, um, you know, some of the other kind of more nimble, newer EV plays like they might be a threat too and take share as well what do you make of them like is it rivian is that what it is so rivian has filed for an ipo supposedly at 80 billion dollars uh ipo they've not produced a single vehicle yet uh the last years uh, i think in the last year or half year they've lost a billion dollars something like that um so rivian is producing a truck which is a very interesting play uh, so Rivian is pretty, when I say truck, it's like a, like, you know, what we'd call a ute here, I guess. Um, so why I think it's interesting is this, if you think about the road Tesla took, Tesla basically went from producing a roadster then to a Model S. So low volume to slightly higher volume to slightly higher volume, right? And Tesla has not yet produced the truck. I think it's an intelligent decision because they, they decided to produce the higher volume car. So the Model Y has a higher volume than Model 3. They produced it after Model 3 so that they can learn from Model 3. And what they're learning from Model Y, they're going to use that to produce the truck because I think they think, while they will not say this, they probably think that the truck is going to sell more <laughs> than the Model Y, which is selling more than the Model 3. Mm. Uh, so they're learning along the way. Rivian has tackled the most lucrative market. It's tackling one of the most lucrative markets, which is the truck market in the US first. If it gets it right, this is, you know, they're going to be you know, on in the on the race with the the Ford one fifty or Ford one fifty Lightning, whatever it is called, Cybertruck, and themselves. That can be a huge thing. If they get it wrong and they hit production hell and they have production problem, <laughs> this is going to be really tough because they don't have that expertise of learning from their, you know, the opportunity of learning from their mistakes, right, um, and making mistakes at a smaller scale. Just imagine, you know, building the wrong factory, right? Because which, that happens, right? Because the, the Fremont factory that Tesla has is not as ideal as the, as the Shanghai factory, which is probably not as ideal as the factory that they're building in Texas and in Berlin. And it probably has different processes that they've learned over time, right? You know, just mm. casting machines and so on. So I think that's it's a big gamble that they're playing. They've got huge backers, Amazon and a few others. But um, a couple of different ways to think about this. 80 billion as a valuation. Tesla didn't have that for a long, long time. Uh, the highest loss Tesla made uh, on, a, on a single year was around 2 billion when they were ramping up Model 3. So I would see that the loss line for Rivian is going to actually really <laughs> rocket up as they ramp up production of the truck. They're going to have more losses, right? So 80 billion sounds like a really ambitious Tesla IPO'd um, at about 3 billion. Right, so something to think about in terms of valuation. I, I don't get the valuation, but hey, that's just rumors that it's going to um, uh, launch. And Lucid is the other one, which I think is interesting because uh, it's interesting because they are taking sort of the Tesla path where they're going for super luxury vehicle. 
and then probably going to go down downstream. I think that's a great strategy. And it's quite likely that we'll have some new players in terms of production as exactly what you were alluding to. So maybe Lucid and a few others. So mm. yeah. I think that at the end of the day, it's, it should be, it's not going to be a one horse race, right? There's, there are going to be multiple players. And Tesla yes. doesn't have to win everything to be a, a massive company along into the future. And the difference is people probably use historical results for, for companies that are pretty much just hardware companies, right? Like the internal combustion engines, just on a manufacturing line, ship it, sell it, lower margins, just get it out the door. Um, whereas there's a lot of optionality in terms of software and subscriptions and charging and, and, and totally you know new things that um, have kind of reinvented the auto industry in that respect. So there's probably room for more than one and more than one very profitable player I, I struggle to see Tesla on 5% operating margins, for example. Um, it does, at least yeah. in the next 10 years, it doesn't really make yeah. sense anymore. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And what we forget is Tesla has, a, has an energy department. Uh, they know mm. they have lots of work going on in AI, right? I mean, they're going to leverage those things in different ways. This is not a traditional auto company. They own uh, uh, the, the Gromon Robotics, which is you know, uh, which is their wholesale independently owned robotics division. So they have a lot of other things. That, you know, I just think that on on just a vehicle basis, you know, the operating margins that they are likely to command over the next say ten years, you know, the stock probably is not very expensive. And then when you add on the other things, well. You know, maybe it's dirt cheap. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, you know, your mileage may vary. Uh, that's what. That's how I look at it. Mm. Well, it's a it's a fascinating thing. I'm sure this won't be the last time we talk about Tesla. Um, the quarterly should come out soon, right? Because we've got the deliveries. Mm-hmm. Um, we should get the quarterly soon. Is it towards the end of the month? Is that when it comes out? You know what? It- I, I'm not really sure exactly when it when it's going to come out. Uh, I haven't checked, but. Okay. Or we'll circle yeah, back to that whenever it comes. We'll out. circle back to that when it comes out. We, you know, we should talk about something else. You know, Tesla. We can keep talking about Tesla. You know, uh, okay. Tell t- t- tell me something about something else. Like, tell me about this EML thing. I'm really okay, interested okay. In, in the EML okay. story. Yeah, sure. So uh, Brent just said in the, um, the live chat that EML is cheap as chips. So um, <laughs> not sure I am ent- entirely in agreement with you there, Brent. But we'll talk about it anyway. So. Um, I'll just get up the latest because EML was down this morning. Yeah, so currently as we record this, EML shares, this is EML payments, ASX EML here in Australia is down 13.6%. And so what's going on? Well, yesterday, um, after market close or about market close, EML came out and said, we're not done. Well, the CBI, this is the Central Bank of Ireland, isn't done with us yet. And for context, EML payments is a global payments business. If you think about like uh, reloadable cards, if you think about fintechs that want to enable their apps so they can send and receive money, all different types of stuff, you can go to EML and you can basically use their services. You plug into their ecosystem and they'll support you to grow. And that's basically the way it works. Uh, It's a very complicated business underneath the surface. We're talking about things like account to account payments, instant payments. They work with gaming companies, if you ever do a cash back for an air conditioner, these are the types of things that um, you would go to EML for. And so basically, EML made an acquisition quite a few years, a couple of years ago. It really only settled last year in 2020 uh, for a company called Prepaid Financial Services in Ireland or PFS. It was a big deal 
before COVID because the, the multiple was massive in terms of, I think, I can't remember off the top of my head, I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but I think it was over 400 million. Then COVID hit, the deal was renegotiated sharply lower. And then it was effectively, there was an earnout component, which it looks like it's going to be paid out, which is uh, this is going to be bugger, bugger all of it paid out because of everything that's transpired since. The Central Bank of Ireland, but basically EML had to move its, its, its reloadable gift cards business out of the UK in anticipation for Brexit. So this move, what some investors don't know, is this move actually happened before EML took control of PFS. So this was already in the works because of Brexit and everything. So they had to move basically any of their cards business that was non-UK business outside of the UK to somewhere in the European Union. And they went to Ireland. Um, so from Ireland, then they could operate the PFS business, which would have general purpose reloadable cards throughout Europe. And it could you know, fuel that part of PFS's business. Another fun fact uh, people probably don't know is that PFS was actually trying to IPO before EML bought it. So you can find some videos online of interviews with the, the, the founders who are in charge of the business. Um, they, their surname is Moran. And so you can, you can go online and you can find out more about it there. But so basically they've, they've separated, PFS separated part of the business. Half of it was going to be regulated, more than half of it was going to be regulated in Ireland. The UK reloadable cards would still be regulated by the FCA in the UK. And basically what's happened, what's transpired since they've gone to Ireland is the central bank who regulates them effectively said, whoa, 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 what's going on here? We need to take a closer look at this. We need to take a closer look at this and this and this. And the punchline for Australian investors is basically that EML shares fell about 44% in a single day of trading about, I'm going to say 46 months ago. So it's a really interesting one in terms of it's been a bit of a hairy ride for some people. And so at the time we recommended EML shares and then we saw this news come out and we watched it fall from grace. And there was this is a very polarizing thing because many investors at the time said that this is, you know, how could you own such a business? Um, you know, this, that, and the other. And basically it was a, there's a lot of, I guess, obfuscation. There was a lot of language in there, a lot of legal speak that really didn't make a lot of sense for investors in that first announcement, which saw it fall 44%. Subsequently, they email then came out and said, and they had the FY21 results, you know, things we're working with the CBI, we've got a open dialogue, blah, blah, blah. But what people don't realize is that um, the, the announcements that EML makes to the ASX actually go through the CBI before they're issued to the ASX. So this is interesting because people always say, oh, well, why can't you just tell us what you think and tell us what we need to know? And this is such a, you know, it looks like, you know, the lawyers were paid 10 times over to write this market update for investors and whatever. And it's true. They probably were, but they, they were probably at the CBI, not at, um, not at EML. And so you've got to remember that too, that in taken in context, it's not necessarily what EML is saying. It's what the CBI and EML is saying. And so in the FY21 results, EML uh, provisioned $9 million for this business. This business accounts for about 27% of EML's revenue, I believe, across the entire business throughout Australia, North America, and Europe and UK. Um, and they also incurred already about $2 million in fees, like legal fees and that type of stuff. The bottom line of what we heard yesterday is basically this, and this is what we can glean, our team can glean. We don't know for sure because it wasn't specific 
But what we can kind of understand is that there's probably two implications here for EML's PFS business in Ireland. One is that the number of accounts and EML's growth strategy is has been pinged. So EML has plans to expand and PFS, you know, throughout Europe and, and what have you. Um, and that's been called into question. The second thing is that the account balances may be something that get capped. So how much money people can have on reloadable cards um, and how like what EML's customers are doing with those cards um, may also be called into question. And the reason why this happens, just for context, this is pretty common around the world. You know, if you go back to, I think it was 2018 here in Australia, you may remember that big scandal with, a, uh, with CBA and um, the Australian money laundering uh, regulator where money launderers were basically putting $9,999 into, uh, into AD, ATMs, those self-depositing ATMs, and then sending that money back to Hong Kong and whatever. Um, and the regulator said, well, you should be, you know, you should be checking this and, and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, reloadable cards, if, for those of you who don't know, are probably an easy way, easier way to get money around places when you don't really want it seen. Um, and so you have to have checks. There has to be checks and balances for the companies that provide those, those schemes. And that's EML. So what we're seeing, what we're likely to see, in my opinion, is probably some type of con constraint around how much money can go into the, the accounts, um, EML's oversight. EML's had to establish a local independent board now that's local to Ireland to facilitate this. So this is basically what we know. And where does this leave investors? Well, I, coming back to Brent's comment about being cheap as chips, I don't know exactly if it's cheap as chips, but if you take it in context, the 13% fall against 27% of revenue, I think there's some negatives. There's many things we don't know. So things we don't know are like what exactly is happening what does the next six months to 12 months look for, like for PFS's Irish business? Um, we don't know the answer to those questions. But some of the positives for EML, we do know that they are still acquiring businesses. So they've made a um, new pay acquisition, which is account to account throughout Europe. There are separate regulators for different parts of EML's business in Europe. So this is kind of focused on one part of one business. Um, the business is likely to benefit from the reopening trade with people in Europe now out going to soccer matches and, and all that type of stuff. So um, there are those benefits. Um, and basically EML is trying to create this kind of ecosystem which facilitates payments anywhere, anytime. And that's pretty exciting. There are, you know, that, that's the simple version, but basically where it lands for me is it's still, I think the price has kind of, I think the price has kind of been, reasonable in terms of like it's reflected in the current price, this uncertainty, uh, given the, the quantum or the size of that EML, that PFS Irish business. And I think that before this, so yesterday morning, I would have been a buyer of shares because I thought the, the price was reasonable given the uncertainty. And today I would probably be a buyer of shares, but I would be you know mindful that it is going to be a volatile business that we don't know exactly what's going on. Uh, we don't know. So full disclosure, we don't know exactly what's going on. That is investing. We talked about this at the top of the show, the uncertainty of investing. And when you get polarizing situations like this is when good money can be made, but it's also when you risk money. So fully be, be fully aware of that. But you know, I still like the business. I like Tom Cregan. I've interviewed him before. Yeah. I guess, have you got any questions around that? Because I just ranted for, what was that, like 10 minutes? 
felt I, like I thought forever. it was a brilliant, uh, you know, uh, overview. I loved it. I'm going to ask a couple of questions just Thanks. for clarification's sake. So, so just to clarify, right? They have business in the U.S. They have business in Europe. They have business, I guess, hmm. in Ireland that's tied to Europe, and then they have business in the U.K. as well, right? It's a pretty global, and they have business in Australia, hmm. right? When you say so, you made a comment. You made a couple of comments, which I was just noting. One was that could be, and this is not guaranteed. There could be a cap on how much money can be loaded into a reloadable card, and there might be some cap on how much they can grow. When you talk about cap on, I think the cap on reloadable cards, like at a higher level, this is basically. Uh, like a central bank basically regulating, right? And those sort of things can happen. To, so one of the things that can happen to any financial services businesses that can, can be regulated, right? Regulation risk is a risk. And yeah. I think you know, to some extent, that risk is always, I guess, baked into the share price to some extent because regulation risk is always there. The other risk though is, I guess, could you elaborate on what you mean in terms of their growth opportunities, right? I mean, they could still get new customers, right? They could get new customers, for reloadable cards. Maybe the reloadable cards get capped at a certain value. Yeah. Um, yeah. And reloadable cards, you know, there's infinite possibilities in many ways, right? In terms of reloadable cards, the, the reloadable cards could be used for any number of things. They could be tied to any number of, um, I guess, options for spending. It could be whether it's gaming, whether it is, uh, you know, uh, betting, a lot of those sort of things is where EML is, a, you know, EML's cards are being used, right? So EML's cards, for example, have they have deal with like points bet in the US, right? Uh, for reliable cards, I believe. Um, mm. So there's no, is are you sensing that when you say growth could be, you know, hampered? Is it that, is it about verticals a bit? Is it about number of people that they can go after? Is it about the size or volume of the total amount of money that they could have, I guess, in a reloadable cards business? What What is your sense there? You is might there not a, have the answer. No, no, no. I guess that's, that's a very reasonable question. So one of the things that I think the reason why, and Tom Cregan made this very clear in the last uh, analyst call that he had, I think Sitchink. One of the reasons why EML is in this situation is because of its growth plans. So EML wants to grow fast. It wants to grow throughout Europe um, through this PFS business. And it's like here in Australia, where we have regulation here in Australia for financial services licenses. So say, for example, you know we have 10 employees in the RAS business and we, we operate under an AFSL. Commonwealth Bank of Australia also operates under an AFSL, but it has 50,000 whatever employees. So it would be regulated, even though we play by the same rules, they're regulated to a different extent to what we are. And I think what we're seeing here is basically email saying we're growing over throughout Europe and this is our plan. This is what the, the, the Irish board of directors has decided for our business and we're going to go and do that. And that's where there's maybe been some friction with the regulator because the regulator is saying, well, whoa, hold on a second, you, you're going to grow throughout Europe? We need to you know, do this and do that. And so I think that context is important here in terms of the governance framework. But the other thing is that EML in the last update, so FY21, they said that there had been no, they hadn't yet modeled impacts to the pipeline for programs coming onto the EML PFS network. So, you know, let's say partners wanted to use EML's platform or PFS's platform, they're still there and they still wanted to use it. Um, in light of the CBI thing, but they hadn't progressed through that pipeline. But 
what we're likely to see now is that pipeline is probably going to be drying up a little bit because even if EML is subject to the same rules as everyone else in Europe, the reality is that the pipeline might struggle to be fulfilled because they just they can't move on any of the, the programs at the moment because while they have this remediation plan in place and they're in dialogue with the CBI, my understanding is they can't actually implement any of the programs that need to be authorized through the CBI. So, mm-hmm. so in the meantime, they, these partners could take their business elsewhere. But the thing is, EML still has other businesses in Europe that have separate you know, authorizations and licensing and regulation and all that sort of stuff too. So that's a fair point. And I take your point about regulation. I think when you're playing with money in, a, in, a, in, a, in the Euro block, which is made up of multiple countries with multiple regulators, with m- many different actors in different countries that want, have different incentives, as you can imagine, it would get pretty, you know, you get tangled up in a lot of regulation pretty quickly. So um, I think that's a fair, fair criticism. I think though that the, the fundamental reason that EML exists is still alive and well throughout the world. It still has, you know, it's got, now it has instant payments in, in Europe. So it can go bank to bank instantly, which is a huge thing uh, for many of these kind of businesses that it's enabling. Um, and, it, you know, throughout Australia and Europe, uh, North America, it's still a business that benefits from people going to Westfields and getting cards, you know, or, or, or incentive programs through air conditioners and, and whatever. So it still can enable things and government incentives and, you know, like salary packaging here in Australia isn't going anywhere. In fact, EML was one of the biggest enablers of that throughout the pandemic. So, um, you know, that, that side of the business is still alive and well. It's just this one particular business that we're looking at. Of course, I guess I should disclose here that there is one more risk, which is that we see air quotes, a spillover. So this issue becomes, oh, well, the French regulator is now going to look at EML as well because the Irish regulator was looking at it. Again, that's, it's regulated separately. They undergo stringent audits all the time. So yeah, that is one of the risks too. And I, I see that in their theses around the place as well. Yeah. And, and I'll just add one more thing. Alex, I didn't mean uh, my financial um, risk as actually negatively. I mean, what I meant is that Oh yeah, e- EML is like a financial services company. So therefore, that risk should have been embedded from day one, right? I mean, in the pricing, yeah. it's like you know, we all know that those companies can be regulated at any time. And as you as you rightly pointed out, I mean, the European Union is regulating what the iPhone needs cannot have a lightning uh, charger; it needs to have a USB C. So <laughs> you can expect all sorts of regulations. Um, the, uh, the I guess the thing is, you know, we. If you're a global business in this area, this is a huge, this is a big market, right? For and, sure. um, uh, and, you know, if you win a small slice of that big market, that, that can be actually enough. <laughs> in many, many cases, that can be just enough, right? And, um, but yeah, I, th- I appreciate actually, I, w- the, I guess the other thing to think about is after all this investigation, there hasn't been any skeletons in the closet, so to speak, right? There hasn't been yet a case, as far as I understand, where it has been found that they have been in the wrong, right? It's not like huge amounts of money laundering has happened that they were not aware of and things like that. So, you know, if this is proactive regulation, that's different from uh, regulation that's happening in a reactive fashion because something bad has happened. And while it does, I guess, it does hamper growth in the short term, could actually be good in the medium to long term, right? I mean, you have a more you have more clarity on what you can execute on, and mm. 
then you reshape your plans accordingly. So that's my a lot of yeah. Uh, final thing on this: a lot of those EML businesses are still scaling, so they're still scaling out of things. And so when you have ex- extra regulation laid on top, that will have a bigger impact on your margins because one of the things, for example, is you have to have it a local independent board of directors in Ireland. So EMLs have to employ directors that get paid handsome yeah. fees in you know euros. So it's more expensive when you report it back in Australian dollars or whatever. And so that's a big cost up front, but in five years, that might not be. So yeah. that's that's a key point too that you bring up there. And yeah, regulators um, need to regulate. That's their job. So they yeah. should be regulating. And I think that's something important too. Um, okay, for full disclosure, I own EML shares as well. So there is one extra topic here that we might cover in, we'll try and do it in two minutes because we're running out of time, which is Australian property prices. What's the latest in Australian property prices? (laughs) (laughs) Owen was smart to actually, you know, skip over this topic and go to EML and actually talk a long, long time on EML. So we only get two minutes. Here's the deal. You know, do you know, Owen, this is a quiz question for you, okay? Yeah. How large is the Australian, uh, Australian stock market? In trillions of dollars, can you give me in the number? Oh, I don't know the answer. I'm just going to pick two trillion dollars. I don't know. It's, it's it's slightly less than like two trillion. It's probably around one point eight to one point nine trillion oh, in right. size. That's pretty close. Okay. Okay. You're pretty close. I'll give you maybe nine out of ten for that. Okay, thank you. Here's the deal, though. The Australian property market, I think, through the pandemic or however many some small number of months, has increased. Oh, in just five months, it says the notes by $1 trillion. Actually, the Australian property market is significantly larger than mm. the Australian stock market. Isn't that pretty sad? Well, that's where innovation <laughs> happens at home. <laughs> at home. So innovation is happening at home. That's, that's my only comment I'm going to make is, you know, it has gained a full trillion dollars in five months. Yeah, I, so, and I saw yeah. that. <laughs> It's, I think Australian property prices, according to CoreLogic data, up around 28.2%. Oh, no, no. That puts housing values 28 po- 28% higher than the estimated value of super, the ASX, and commercial real estate combined. That I is incredible. It. It's incredible. I'm almost feeling like I should just do a rock song or something like that at this point. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, and it's incredible. It's incredible success for the Australian property market. Uh, I, I think it's also incredible, <laughs> less than appropriate use of capital in some sense. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> um, but yeah, well, well, let's leave it at that. That's my, yeah, okay. Okay. Uh, I'll leave it at that. Maybe I'll just have one departing comment on this. We could go on for that, which is that I don't think we'll ever solve the housing problem in Australia by adding more demand. I just want to, I just want to emphasize a point. Like, I don't think it stops becoming an issue until we solve the supply problem. That's just yeah, my two cents. Yeah, it's just supply. It's just, we have plenty of land in this country, as far as I know. You know, um, when I used to drive from okay, now we're going on, on tangent. But when I, to, when I was driving once from Maryland's to uh, to Campbelltown, this was maybe 11, 12 years ago, and my wife and I we, you know, we were chatting, and she said, you know, and the only question I asked her, do you do you think we are going in the right direction? Because it was just you know, you were just driving, and there was nothing in the middle. And uh, you kept driving, driving, driving. Eventually, you did reach the destination. I said, oh, okay, so we were driving the right way and we did take the right path. It turns out, well, you have all this land in the middle that's vacant so that people can build far out, as far out as possible, so that the land in the middle gets higher in value. So you can sell that later in life. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, you know, that's a good strategy. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and the, yeah, yeah. That's that sounds really interesting. Um, sure. You would love to own that much land. I guess that's uh, that's one of the things. Intergenerational wealth transfer, maybe. Um, okay, so interesting. There was one question that came through uh, via email in advance, which was. Um, I've been an avid listener to your podcast over a year now. I have passed on your podcast to friends. I'm really impressed with the Rockets program. I'm actually reaching out for some advice. I'm currently an electrician, a Sparky. I'm 38 and I've not studied before. I want to pursue a career as an investment analyst. I'm willing to study as I currently do an even time roster of seven days on, seven days off. Um, in your opinion, what would be the best course of action today? Would it be better to have a bachelor of commerce, business or major in accounting um, or would there be a better course? Uh, another uh, part of this question would be, are there investment companies out there that take on junior analyst roles with no qualifications? Um, or would there be investment companies that would accept and critique investment analyst pieces from someone that does not have a degree? I don't know. That's a really interesting question. I think it's a pretty popular question for people just starting out. I don't know if you have any thoughts yeah. on that. Well, well, you know, um, you can take courses, right? So you guys offer evaluation framework course so that you could you could do that. And that's a one way of getting like um, a framework at one go, right? Yeah. And, and I think that's very useful, I think, for people uh, to sort of get grasp of just basic things and basic ideas and, uh, and, and have a coherent sort of structure to it. I think the current structure really helps. That's one approach. The other thing I say to people is read 10Ks. <laughs> uh, that's what I call the free knowledge domain. You know, you want to learn about payments, read the MasterCard uh, mm. or Visa annual report. And you don't have to read the 200 pages of financial disclosures and, you know, these, you know, weird things that are there. You just need to read the business section. Read the business section and maybe if you're, you know, what is the business? What are the risks? And uh, read the management commentary if you're really keen on that part. You know, you just get you'd get so many nuggets out by reading just if you're payments or maybe paper, uh, if you if you're interested in payments. So I say pick a well-known company in an area that you're interested and read their annual report. And and preferably you want to read the big you know the big dog, uh, big dogs um, annual report because the big, if you want to learn about telco in Australia, you pick Telstra's annual report and you actually learn a lot about how telcos operate. Um, and, and that's, you know, if you want to learn about banking, you pick the annual report of, uh, say CBA and you can, you can learn a lot out there. So that's, that's one way actually, that's, it's, you know, I find that that's one way to just learn about individual domains. So two ideas, I don't yeah. have anything else that I can add. Yeah, I, I agree. You've just got to, investing is one of those things where you have to learn by doing. There are people that do master's degrees, they do CFA qualifications and charter, you know, become charter holders. And they still don't really understand investing because they haven't done it. They've, they've learned, about, learned about it theoretically. Sometimes you just need to do it. I think if I was looking to break into the industry, honestly, I would say that this is probably a you know, three to five year plan because the, the market for investment analysts is extremely competitive. Um, here in Australia, basically the, the center of gravity is Sydney. So if you're not in Sydney, it's even more competitive. Um, obviously in the US, you've got a bit more, you know, there are more cities to choose from. Obviously New York's a pretty major hub for finance, London and Europe. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it's hard. When I did a study on this, I actually, I studied the biggest buy side fund managers. So, you know, boutique fund managers and what have you in Australia. And what I found is that the overwhelming majority of analysts had a bachelor of commerce. The next most popular qualification was the chartered financial analyst qualification. 
followed by the Masters of Applied Finance, and then the Chartered Analyst, uh, Chartered Accountant designation, which is obviously relevant for many people. But many people that have the CA qualification or a Bachelor of Commerce get into investing because they've come through an accounting role, like at a big four or whatever. Um, my advice on this, just in terms of what to study, has kind of always been the same, which is that I probably wouldn't go for a straight finance qualification. I think finance and investing is becoming more multidisciplinary as time goes on. So I think if you can group it with something else, whether it's psychology, whether it's engineering, like if I had my time again, I'd probably do engine and finance together, to be honest, like software engineering and finance, because I think that's like a pretty cool thing. It's what I'm interested in. Um, And so I would be looking at ways to make myself unique amongst the pack. And I think a great way to do that again, just one final note is to write a blog or start as, as you said, read these reports and write a summary of them and just get in the habit of doing that. And then eventually you might be able to share your thoughts with a fund manager or engage with a fund manager or investment company or, you know, a company that you want to work for on Twitter, um, online somewhere. And then you can have an open and honest dialogue with those people because few of, they're not going to respond to a cold call, unfortunately. Like they don't just say, yeah, you're great. Come on, join the team. It's, it's, it is pretty competitive. And so you've got to, talk at their level that's what i've found in, in my experience I don't that i hope i wish everyone all the best that wants to move into finance it's a really competitive market um but hey if you've got a plan in place and you know you do the hard work i think it's a pretty fruitful industry particularly here in australia it's a very very uh, fruitful industry so uh, there's one final personal finance thing which i might throw in just for dexterity here which is um i learned of a social slash financial slash life-saving hack today and this one is if you donate blood at the same time as your friends you get a free snack so you benefit from that you get the opportunity to save a life and you could potentially have a chat with your friends while you're donating blood uh, because you're in the same room with them so it's a good way to catch up and uh, kind of sidestep those social isolation rules um, obviously in new south wales you guys are almost free <laughs> do, do you have masks on though <laughs> well, you probably, yeah, I think you would have to. I, I donated blood the other week. And um, yeah, I, uh, you know, I was amazed. This is the first time I've donated blood. I don't know if you do this, but first time I've donated blood. And there were, um, there were some blokes in there. They come in, they've got their book under their arm. Um, they basically know the nurses. They walk up to their seat, um, whack the, the, the thing in their arm, and they read their book. And then their f- mate comes up and does the same thing in the seat next to them. And they have a chat. And they discuss things. And I thought this was a great community of people donating blood. Um, you can't donate much else during COVID and lockdown. So I thought this was a really cool way to donate, feel good about yourself, save a life, and potentially see some friends. So really interesting. That's cool. That's by one. Well, New, South Wales, New South Wales comes out of lockdown. Yeah. Monday. So I guess oh. Victoria will have to uh, do the heavy lifting in terms of blood donation from here on out. Yeah, Vic- but, uh, Victoria needs to do the heavy lifting, man. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, yeah, before I let you go, what's the, what's one thing you're going to do when you get out on Monday? Like, what, what is one thing that you or the family are, are looking forward to doing? You know, I'm actually going to do nothing. <laughs> because <laughs> nothing I have changes. a feeling, because I have a feeling if you want to go and have coffee or whatever it is, it's going to be busy. You want to have yeah. something else, it's going to be busy. So I'm going to just do nothing. <laughs> yeah, just let the, let the kind of the smoke blow over and then... Um, yeah. jump into it after that yeah cool yeah we, we've been actually allowed i think 20 people so we might try to get together at some point with some friends um you know that's really it yeah mm-hmm. so. yeah 
Cool. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah. That's a good way to it's a good way to get back into it. And I think a lot of people are going to have a bit of social anxiety as well because they haven't been around people for quite a while. So I think people are going to be exhausted and and what have you when they catch up with people. So um, Binoff just said uh, one episode dedicated to Web three, please. Interesting. Okay, maybe. Okay. You know, okay. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Future. Episode, nice idea. Sure. Future sure. episode. Yeah. For sure. All right, mate. So people they want to get your your latest stock idea. They want to get the seven investing team stock idea. I believe they go to seveninvesting.com forward slash subscribe and they use the RASK, that's R-A-S-K code, and they get it a little bit cheaper. Is that right? That is absolutely right. Yeah. If you want, yeah, seven stocks, all US listed uh, stocks, they could be actually international companies, but they might be listed. They have to be listed in the US. Um, Yeah. Seven different ideas from seven different people with seven different perspectives. If you're interested. Yeah. Cool. I like it. Yeah. Seven investing. Check it out. Tell us about uh, Rask. What can they get right now? Right now. Well, you should right do now. this right, right now. If you're listening to this, um, you can head to rask.com.au and you can find out all about our subscriptions um, and the like. We've also got a value investor program, which I'm about to revamp. So that's where we train people to, to think like analysts. To You can download DCF models and, and templates and we do case studies and that. So we're about to up, update that before Christmas. So that will be a whole new program with new companies. We did PayPal, PushPay and Zero was the case studies last time, which worked out very well, I might add, for anyone nice. that did the course. Um, so this time around, yeah, check that out. That's called the Value Investor Program. Um, Vinoth also says, any chance of a RASC event this year? I tell you what, Vinoth, maybe not this year, but next year, 2022, yeah. we... I tell you what, we'll try and get out. Um, the two of us will try and get out in Sydney and say good day, um, or Melbourne or wherever. We'll try and get out and about. If we're allowed to, we'll try and get out. If, 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 I, if I'm allowed a quarantine free travel into Victoria, then I promise to come and do a presentation if I'm invited. You will <laughs> definitely I, be invited. I can't do but it myself. I'm not coming to do a presentation <laughs> if I have to quarantine. <laughs> Isn't there a train that goes between? Yeah, no. <laughs> then we can do a present. We can just go to, I think, Wodonga is uh, is at the border, is it? Uh, the bubble. Yep. Half you, yeah. half me. There we go. Half you know, then we can have people seated on the border across yep, both it. sides. Either side of that's the Murray it. River. That's it. Yeah. Yep. I like it. Cool. And and Brett's also dropped in a few um a few comments here. Wonderful. If if the tech gurus have any opinion on Asana, Duolingo, or Okado, I'd be I'd love to hear it. We'll put that on the list for next time, Brett. So thanks for tuning in. And thanks everyone for listening who came came to the live event on YouTube. If you want to subscribe, you can to the RAS YouTube page and you'll get notif- notified next time. Or you can just keep listening in audio form. Mate, 7A Mahanti on Twitter. The link will be in the show notes. Um, always a pleasure. And thanks for, for joining me. Thanks for having me. And you forgot to tell your, um, you know, Handle. You should mention the handle too. At at Owen Rask, also in the show notes. So you can check that out. All the links are in the show notes. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Keep the conversation going on Twitter or elsewhere. And good luck with that Starlink. Yes. I'll tell everybody what happens. (laughs) (laughs) All righty. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Cheers. (laughs) 